Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Just a quick note before we begin. The DeFi space is moving so fast that parts of this episode have become somewhat outdated since the time of recording, which was not even a week before this episode comes out. For one, I say that DEX trading volume has 8xed in August from the beginning of the year, and by now, a few days after we recorded, it's 10xed. I also theoretically talk about a new DEX forking the code of Uniswap and launching a token and liquidity mining scheme on it before Uniswap V3 launches. And SushiSwap, which is the definition of that, launched the exact day we recorded and we were unaware of it, or at least I was at the time we spoke. Then when we discussed the 24-hour trading fees on Uniswap, at the time of recording, they were half that of Bitcoins. And now a few days later, before publication, they have exceeded those on Bitcoin. And finally, we talk about how trading volume on DEXs is smaller than that of centralized exchanges. And while by the time of publication, that statement is still true, Uniswap's 24-hour trading volume has exceeded that of Coinbase's, which is pretty remarkable. So if when you listen, it sounds like this episode is old, well, it is in the world of DeFi, which moves at the pace of a live-streamed video game. With all that said, this is still a fascinating, engaging, and fun conversation with Haseeb Qureshi of Dragonfly Capital and Dan Robinson of Paradigm, and I think you will really enjoy it. Now on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's topic is automated market makers. Here to discuss are Haseeb Qureshi, managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, and Dan Robinson, research partner at Paradigm. Welcome, Haseeb and Dan. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's good to be here. This year, there's been an explosion in decentralized exchange activity, particularly among the group of DEXs known as automated market makers. Admittedly, the growth is from a tiny base, but the rise is still striking. DEX volume was below a billion dollars in January and hovered at about $1 billion through May. Then in June, it was still below $2 billion, but in the last few months, it's exploded, with volume for August having already surpassed $8 billion, with almost a week remaining in the month at the time of recording. Just quickly before we dive into why this is happening, let's first define the terms DEX or decentralized exchange, and let's also define or describe the specific type that we're talking about, these automated market makers, just so the audience understands the distinction. Dan, you want to take that? Sure. So um, a decentralized exchange 
um, is anything that serves the same function as centralized exchanges like Coinbase or Binance, um, but does it on a blockchain um, or on an off-chain um, scaling solution for a blockchain so that it essentially can be done without a centralized party custodying the funds or, um, or managing an order book. An automated market maker is a specific subset of these DEXs that provides liquidity according to an algorithm rather than based on orders submitted by, um, by participants. And so the biggest AMM um, uh, or highest volume AMM is Uniswap, um, and it provides liquidity according to a very deterministic formula, uh, a very simple one. So maybe I can I can kind of fill in a little bit of a sort of an analogy of what how you can understand what Uniswap is as an automated market maker. Um, so I, I wrote a post about this recently where I described you know imagine that you had a, a friend that decided that they were going to be a market maker. And for those who are not familiar, a market maker is basically somebody who is always willing to buy and sell some pair of assets. Uh, so we often say they're market making that asset. Um, so like I'm always willing to buy some ETH or I'm always willing to buy some USDC. Uh, and I'm always sort of willing to quote the two prices at which I'm willing to buy and sell those assets. So uh, what, what a market maker like uh, Uniswap does is basically it's a market maker that uses an extremely simple algorithm, uh, which, which we can go into at some point, uh, that decides when and how it's going to buy and sell, uh, what price it's going to give for those two assets, according to a simple formula. Uh, but the thing that it does that's so different from any other normal market maker is that, one, it has no money of its own but it sort of raises money from decentralized investors who can give money to the market maker that allow it to buy and sell that asset. And those investors can share in the profits of that market maker. And uh, in addition to that, it's completely permissionless. So it all works on chain. It's, 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 it's all completely autonomous. And that is very fundamentally different than any market maker who's come before it, which have all been you know, normal companies that go on exchanges that have you know, shingles over the roof and employees. Uh, Uniswap does this entirely in an automated way through smart contracts. And that's the really big difference between what's come before. Yeah. And one uh, little disclaimer that I do want to add is that Dan at Paradigm, um, they've invested in Uniswap. So um, that is something people watching the video might have figured out because he is wearing a Uniswap t-shirt. <laughs> but we should uh, let people know that because we are going to be talking about Uniswap quite a bit during this episode. And one other thing I wanted to ask about was this idea of the constant function market makers. Um, you know, you touched on that very slightly, but can you just describe a little bit more what that means? So a, a constant function market maker. Um, so we can start with Uniswap. Uh, so Uniswap has a particular function that it uses to decide how it's going to quote prices, like how much it's going to charge for ETH versus USDC or whatever, whatever is the two pairs uh, or the two assets that it's quoting. Every algorithmic market maker or automated market maker, for the most part that exists today, uses some kind of uh, very simple fixed pricing function that can be computed on chain, uh, given its reserves or given what it has in inventory. So it's like if I have, you know, 10 units of ETH and... Uh, 10,000 units of USDC, uh, what is the rule that decides what prices I'm going to charge for the ETH versus the USDC? Uh, Uniswap uses the rule called the constant product rule, which basically says that uh, the units of ETH that I have, not the, not the dollar value, but the units. So literally, if it's 10 ETH, 20 ETH, I don't care what the price of ETH is. I just care how many units of ETH I have. Uh, the units of my first asset and the units of my second asset multiplied together must equal a fixed constant. And so let's, let's imagine that it's, you know, uh, let, let's say that I'm, I'm quoting, you know, ETH, uh, or sorry, uh, let's say I'm quoting USDC and Tether, right? Those are two assets that should be worth the same. 
So if I have 100 USDC and I have 100 Tether, then 100 times 100 is 10,000. Uh, whenever I'm changing the price and I'm quoting somebody uh, uh, some trade against my, uh, against my inventory, I should always make it so that when I'm done, the two assets, uh, the two units I have of asset A and asset B in inventory must always equal 10,000 multiplied together. That's the constant product rule. That's the rule that Uniswap uses. And it was the sort of the first and most influential of these kind of uh, this generation of automated market makers that, that uh, Uniswap really began. Uh, but the, the universe of functions that you could use is actually quite a bit larger than just constant product. And so one of the other large platforms that uh, has kind of really grown lately is called Curve. And Curve uses a, a different function uh, than the constant product function. It uses this uh, more complicated function that's a mixture of constant product and constant sum. They call it the stable swap invariant. Uh, and basically what that does is Curve is optimized for stable coins only or other mean reverting assets like, you know, different kinds of wrapped Bitcoin or different kinds of wrapped ETH or whatever. And in that universe, uh, you, you basically can assume that probably these two assets actually should trade pretty close to each other. Uh, the, the constant product rule, X times Y equals K, it, it gives you some slippage when you're, when you're making, you know, moderate sized trades. And for something like Curve, where you're trading assets that really should be worth the same almost all the time, um, you can actually offer better pricing and you can offer tighter slippage in most ranges of inventory that you can end up with. Uh, and so stable swap, uh, which is what Curve uses, allows Curve to actually be more competitive on pricing because of the fact that it has this different kind of inventory and thus it can offer different kinds of rates. So what we're, what we're starting to see is this renaissance of different functions that are being applied to different, uh, different AMMs that are better suited for the particular kinds of assets that those uh, AMMs are, are trading. And so from the from the yeah, trader side, what are they using automated market makers for as opposed to, for instance, a centralized exchange? So one area where automated market makers and DEXs in general excel is in sort of the long tail of tokens um, that haven't necessarily been listed on any centralized exchange. So Uniswap um, and a couple others like Balancer support arbitrary ERC-20 tokens. So as soon as something is an ERC-20 token, it can be listed on Uniswap and people can start trading it there. Um, and it's also, it's, in part, it's, it's, this is because it's permissionless um, and on-chain. Another reason uh, that I think these automated market makers are good for the long tail is because you may actually need some centralized market maker on a traditional exchange to basically go on and actually uh, make a market, um, both sides of the market, to make, have enough liquidity in a token. And that's just not going to be the case for most tokens, whereas on Uniswap, literally anybody can do that. It doesn't take any professional expertise. It's basically just click a button and suddenly you're, you're providing liquidity in both sides of a, of a market for a particular token. Um, and so that's proven to be a very, uh, um, uh, there's proven to be a very long tail of tokens that people would be, would like to trade. Now, one let's thing, go, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, one thing I want to point out that I think might not be obvious for folks who've been following the space for a while. Um, so you might remember things like Ether Delta, obviously Zero X was, was a very big uh, set of decentralized exchanges or, or protocol for a decentralized exchange. And none of these things really took off in a big way uh, before Uniswap. And I think it's an important question to like really try to ponder like why, what, what's different now? And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll go into that at some point. Uh, and I'm sure Dan and I have different theories of why Uniswap has been so successful. But one big, very clear difference actually that I would, that I would argue between DeFi now and what decentralized exchange trading looked like two or three years ago is that two or three years ago, it was basically all long tail assets. So the kinds of assets that you saw getting the most liquidity on Ether Delta or on, you know, the early zero X relayers, they were mostly these long tail, really crappy tokens that weren't getting listed on centralized exchanges. 
And it's not that centralized exchanges didn't list tokens aggressively. It's that some things were so bad that even centralized exchanges weren't willing to list them. Um, and now what you're seeing is actually quite a bit different profile in the types of tokens that are trading on DeFi. So you're seeing the, the really high quality pairs like ETH USDC or ETH Tether or USDC Tether or you know, ETH Wrap Bitcoin. You're seeing those start to gain really meaningful volume. Uh, and that's pretty fundamentally different. It feels a lot more sustainable than what was happening in 2017. Um, the other thing that I would say has a big, has a lot of explanatory power for why Uniswap has been so successful, which I, I think was difficult to anticipate ex ante, was the power of what, what are called incentivized pools. So incentivized pools are basically this idea. So, you know, normally if I, if I want to start a new uh, Uniswap pool, because, you know, I want to market make for some pair, I want there to be some liquidity so people can buy and sell it. Um, you know, I need to I need to provide some liquidity, meaning I need to put some of ETH and you know token X. So let's say let's say Ampleforth because it's you know a token that trades a lot on, on Uniswap. Um, if I if I'm you know an early holder or I'm a community supporter or I'm the core team of Ampleforth and I want there to be liquidity, um, you know, on a centralized exchange I could go like pay a listing fee, I could go hire a market maker, I could do all the stuff that's like kind of a pain in the ass. It's very expensive. It's very difficult. Um, what I could do instead is I could go on Uniswap, and of course I could myself just provide liquidity. I could just put a bunch of ETH and a bunch of Ampleforth in the pool and let Uniswap do the work. Uh, but another thing that I could do is I could actually incentivize other people to go do that for me. And the way that that works is essentially there's a, so Ampleforth has this thing they call the geyser. And the geyser, what it does is basically you can, you can imagine that like every day or every week, uh, Ampleforth spits out a bunch of new Ample rewards to anybody who's providing liquidity on Uniswap. And so what that does is it's sort of like, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like Ampleforth can pay a market maker to market make the asset, but it's, but it's paying anybody who's willing to provide liquidity on Uniswap. So it's sort, of, it's sort of this like very clever way to incentivize the community to become your market maker. Uh, and that's become a big driver for the success of Uniswap. Yeah, well, this is actually where I was going to go with my question is just, you know, why is it that we're seeing this explosion in DEX activity. And I do, you know, want to also just put into context when I say explosion, to be fair, when I say it's, you know, the August volume is probably going to come in over 8 billion. It's still small compared to the July volume on centralized exchanges, which was uh, 109 billion, but it's not insignificant and it is growing fast. So, you know, what has happened just in the last few months? Is it uh, because of the incentivized pools or is it, does it have to do with the yield farming craze or why just in these last few months have we seen this explosion? I think, um, I think the DeFi boom in, in general and the yield farming craze particularly have been big drivers of, um, of Ethereum usage. Uh, and DEXs, I think, uh, serve those uses particularly well because if you're doing something on chain with tokens, if you're borrowing them on, on Compound or if you're minting DAI and Maker or you know, participating in yield farming in any number of these protocols, um, you typically don't want to go to the trouble of depositing to an exchange, waiting for the deposit uh, uh, time to, um, to expire, making the trade, withdrawing it. It's like you're actually going to spend more potentially in transaction fees from the deposit and withdrawal than you would from an on-chain trade. And so it's much more convenient for you just to go to Uniswap. And this is true even if you're trading a, a fat tail token uh, or fat tail pair like USDT, USDC, or USDT having actually something to do on chain with tokens um, has really increased the usefulness of DEXs, which in my opinion, provide right now a better, a more convenient user experience um, than centralized exchanges. 
even with extremely high fees and slow uh, confirm transaction confirmation times. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that I think there's a really amazing story about how DEXs and, and DeFi has started to look actually more convenient than centralized exchanges. So in the in the post, I shared a story of a friend of mine who was telling me, you know, uh, there was there was some hot token that was that he was interested in trading, and it, you know, it got listed in a few places, and and he was telling me like, look, I, you know, I I could I could go like look up on CoinGecko and try to see which exchanges it's listed on and how many of them are legit and, you know, where has the most liquidity and then send up an account and send my funds there, but it's just too much work. And so instead, like, I'm going to go, I'll just like click a couple buttons and like buy it on an aggregator or on Uniswap or on whatever. That to me was a little bit of a revelation that like, oh shit, people are going to use DeFi because they're lazy, not because they're ideological, not because they care about non-custodial trading. The other element of it that I think uh, is also very important, especially in, in this latest bull run that we've seen kind of centered around DeFi, is that, you know, so much of what made Binance successful in the ICO craze was that Binance was the first to list a lot of these assets, right? And so if you wanted to get in early, and of course, so much of crypto speculation is about getting in early, uh, you had to go to Binance because that's just, where that's just where things got listed first. And now you're seeing that actually happen on DeFi. DeFi is where it's listed first, Right. Comp first traded on, on Uniswap before it traded on any centralized exchange. Uma was trading first on, on Uniswap. Uh, so many of these assets are first available in DeFi before they're available on any centralized exchange. And so if you want to get in early, if you want to get in with the cool kids, if you want to get in with all, what all the influencers are doing, uh, they're all on DeFi doing it all direct. And I think that's another thing that's driving a lot of the uh, excitement for people to get onto DeFi. And of course, it's driving up gas fees like crazy. Um, but it's, it, in, a, in a way, it's, part, it's become part of the game that... DeFi is now, you know, the hottest, coolest place where all the people are making all the money. And that, of course, incentivizing people to say, hey, shit, I want a piece of that. And one other thing I was curious about is, uh, so Uniswap, like, you know, when I asked this question, I was asking about yield farming, but Uniswap does not offer any kind of liquidity mining. So yield farming is not possible there. But a number of the other AMMs are doing that. And so I wondered... Do you think that the uptick in volume that we're seeing on these DEXs that are not Uniswap, but ones that do have a token, do you think that's something that will be sustainable? Or do you think that the volume that we're seeing on those DEXs is is just, you know, kind of a flash in the pan just because people are being incentivized to put their liquidity there? Well, so two, two things I want to say to that. So one is that uh, I think incentivized pools are basically isomorphic to yield farming. They're kind of the same thing, just in a different, just in a different term, right? It's the no, idea wait, that, like, what does isomorphic mean? <laughs> uh, basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing, right? It's just sort oh, of okay. a different name. Because um, yield farming is this idea that like, okay, I put up my assets and I normally get some nominal yield, but that yield gets juiced by some protocol rewards, right? Uniswap has the same thing, right? I'm supposed to put my money in a Uniswap pool. I get some yield by the trading fees and the uh, permanent loss. But that gets juiced by the incentive, you know, whoever's oh, offering oh. the incentives in the pool. On a per so it's pool the same basis. Thing, but it's on a per pool basis. Like the Ample Forest guys are here. Exactly. Right, like Ample right. Forest or Synthetics or, you know, any of these incentivized pools that are, that are getting a lot of action. But it's important to recognize that what, what that does is not drive trading volume. It drives liquidity, right? Trading volume is a totally separate deal. So mm. because, because incentivizing a lot of liquidity up front gets these big, fat, juicy pools, right? And says, oh, great, look, there's so much capital that you can trade against. But if nobody wants to trade, it doesn't matter. It's just going to sit there and do nothing, right? The actual, the real interesting story is not the liquidity. The really interesting story is the trading demand, right? Where's all this trading volume come from? Because that's not incentivized. Nobody's getting rewarded for trading against Uniswap. They're trading against Uniswap because they like the prices. That's what's really interesting. 
And uh, I, I, I think, you know, the, the fact that the, the pools are really big, I mean, so most of the, 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 the highest volume Uniswap pools are at this point, not even incentivized. They were in the earlier days, but at this point, they're not. Uh, and the same thing is true for Curve, right? Curve has incentivized uh, uh, liquidity because the people who are depositing funds into Curve, they are getting, you know, some Curve tokens. Uh, but people who are trading against Curve, they just want to swap stable coins. And Curve has a ton of volume from people who are getting nothing except actually getting trades executed. So the liquidity, it, what it's showing us is that there is actually latent demand that's there. If there was no latent demand, then what you'd see is a ton of liquidity with almost no trading volume. And that's the opposite of what we're seeing, which is what's so interesting about what's happening now. And let's just parse this out a little bit more because I, I actually was going to ask a question about this, but we can cover this now. You know, when I was doing research for this, I did see things like, yeah, Uniswap had obviously the highest trading volume out of all the AMMs, but then something like Curve, which was smaller, had more total value locked in it. So can you, I mean, I think you kind of already started to answer this, but can you just walk us through a little bit more? Like, what does it mean uh, for an AMM, uh, or, or sorry, what does uh, total value locked mean for an AMM? And then what does trading volume mean? And and why and so if we see a lot of total value locked one place, but then more trading volume elsewhere, like what does that mean? So you can think about the liquidity that's locked in a in a pool. And locked is really not the right word, and we all use it um, and feel a little guilty about it uh, because it's there. It's available to be traded against, right? You can think about that as kind of the maker side of the market, the the maker orders where um, somebody's pooling liquidity and it's available at any at any price um, in some quantity. The Volume is the is the taker demand, and typically the makers are are there. Um, they're sort of neutral between these two assets, and they're just trying to make money off of the fees. Um, and the takers are trying are trying to actually trade there. And what we found is that uh, to some extent, liquidity drives volume, um, the the quantity of of, of uh, maker orders, because it determines how uh, how much you can trade on this um, without pushing the price too far. Um, and so. Uh, it's not the full story, and in fact, um, Uniswap right now has has lower liquidity than um, than Curve or Balancer total uh, in its pools, but much higher volume. And I think that's in part uh, so it shows that there's some stickiness to volume aside from liquidity. That and that's true even on the same tokens. Although the other thing that matters is, is whether this is liquidity in tokens that actually um, that people actually care about trading. And so I agree with with Asib generally that volume is a is a pretty maybe a better indicator, um, although it can be confounded a bit. If this liquidity would be unprofitable otherwise and is there, people will trade against it. Um, but potentially that could dry up when, if, if uh, incentives dry up. So, the, I mean, the right way to think about TVL, which is total value locked in a protocol, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun headline metric. We all talk about it. And it's like, it's, it's really stupid. Um, to, it's, it's kind of like trying to measure how good a blockchain is by looking at its hash rate, um, <laughs> which is like, it's like one thing and it like kind of matters if you contextualize it correctly. But if you don't, like, it's just, it's just not the main thing to think about. Um, I mean, the most cogent way to describe, like, what is TVL for market maker, for automated market makers is like, again, if you imagine that this is a market maker, you know, this is just literally a market maker that's buying and selling things. That's the size of its balance sheet, right? It's, you know, this, 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 this thing, if it's got $500 million locked, then its balance sheet is $500 million. And that allows it to do a lot of trading because if you have $500 million, you can absorb a lot of, a lot of volume. Now, of course, like compared to normal market makers, right? Like one thing you can't help but notice is that all of these automated market makers are incredibly capital inefficient. Like the amount of capital that's in curve is like absolutely insane relative to the amount of trading volume that it's doing, right? It just, it, it, just on the absolute numbers, it doesn't really need that much liquidity. Um, but, you know, what's happening in a sense is that 
the, the liquidity, the balance sheet of Curve is getting subsidized by this airdropped you know, CRV distribution. And the same thing is happening in incentivized pools, right? Like these things are getting subsidized by whatever teams are, are subsidizing these, uh, these pools. And so that may mean that normally, uh, you know, at equilibrium, if there were no subsidy, really there should be less liquidity uh, and, you know, the returns compared to the risk and so on. It's obviously hard to measure all this stuff because we don't really, nobody really knows what, you know, how much risk should you be taking? How much should you be rewarded for taking a certain amount of risk? Everybody's sort of, you know, just finger in the air, like kind of take a rough guess. But uh, it's, it's very clear that one effect of liquidity mining is that it is somewhat distortive of the sort of natural rate of, of uh, uh, sort of the, the, what you should expect to be the risk-free rate and the price of risk in these markets. Yeah. And one thing I do also want to point out for listeners is uh, this is another way to contextualize the volumes that we are seeing on Uniswap. At the time of recording, the fees for the last 24 hours on Uniswap were roughly half that of the fees on Bitcoin. Uh, it was about a half a million dollars on Uniswap and then about a million dollars in fees on Bitcoin. And, you know, that's quite remarkable because Uniswap is nowhere near as old as Bitcoin. Um, but actually, I, I want to maybe throw that uh, to you guys. Is it fair to even make that comparison between the two? Because they're obviously completely different things. I think it's I love the sort of fees paid as a metric in general. Um, and I think uh, maybe more than I like total value locked. And I think it's uh, it's fun, especially to compare um, the fees earned by these applications on on Ethereum to some of the smaller um, chains that are still around from um, you know from 2015 and before. Well, like Bitcoin. Um, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do think obviously there's ways. It, <laughs> um, obviously, there's ways in which it's it's incomparable. And one way actually is that the, those Uniswap fees don't even count the Ethereum gas fees that people are paying to use uh, Uniswap. That's just um, the transaction fees that are going to that are going to liquidity providers, um, and then on the flip side, the Bitcoin one does not include block rewards, um, uh, which are for miners the the primary source of their of their revenue, um, and that's uh, sort of really what drives a lot of this um, mining demand. And then obviously again, these are these are very different kinds of services, but I do think it's I do think it's useful to show just what are people actually willing to pay for. So you know, one thing that's interesting here is, I mean, it's not like Uniswap. Uh, is completely dominant, but it is quite dominant. And I just wondered, what does that mean for decentralization? So Uniswap, the protocol is um, is completely decentralized in the sense that uh, the contracts are on chain and can't chain and can't be stopped by um, by the team. And if the entire Uniswap development team disappeared uh, tomorrow, Uniswap v two would continue to operate. The interfaces are open source. That said, I think that's one of the benefits of decentralization is that you can have this kind of network effect building up in, in one um, uh, system without having the kind of platform risk that that would uh, cause in, in sort of more traditional internet businesses or in any other kind of businesses that have existed before. And so that's, I think, one of the, one of the benefits is that it, it could be that Uniswap sucks up all the liquidity in the market, um, but that's fine. That said, I'm, I'm not, I think that's, that's not necessarily going to continue to be the case. And I think there's going to have to be more innovation um, in this in this field, um, it's not. I don't think Uniswap v two is going to be the final um, word on on liquidity and just have uh, sort of a, an infinite lock on the AMM market. Well, there's going to be a v three coming out soon, anyway. So right, that's what that's what I was referring to. Uniswap well, v three will be that. <laughs> <laughs> Dan trying well, so to be I, oblique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, well, so I, I disagree with one of the things that Dan said, which is that 
uh, Uniswap has a network. Finally, which I, which right. I, which I, I don't agree. Expecting has Steve and I disagree on everything, and so far he's been waiting. this entire time waiting <laughs> to start a fight, and I've been telling him, "Look, I love you. I love Uniswap," um, but he doesn't believe me. Uh, so I, well, first we can we can get to that maybe in, in a second. But the other thing that I want to say in response to Laura's question is that um, I don't think that it. Um, so I, I agree with with uh, with Dan obviously that Uniswap is, is decentralized in, in in the sense that nobody controls it. Uh, but I also disagree with sort of the, the spirit behind the question that the idea that having something that's sort of outsizedly successful on chain is a uh, is a sign that something is not decentralized, right? Because I think it, you, you should sort of expect it to be natural that there's some power law to like what is the most valuable thing and, and what ends up becoming most most used by people or most beloved or, or most effective. Um, and if there's some kind of scale effect to that thing, then naturally it will end up becoming really big. Um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's sort of like asking, you know, is, uh, is crypto not decentralized because Bitcoin is the biggest one and it's got all, you know, everyone loves that one. Like, isn't that kind of not decentralized? Um, and so in the same way, I think, I think Uniswap being, being, uh, sort of the right now, you know, the, by it's the number one largest gas guzzler on Ethereum today, which I think speaks to how much people love it and how much value people get out of it. Um, mm. but I don't think that's any mark against being decentralized. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. How is that? That was very That was not the thing I disagree with you on. No, the thing I disagree with you on is the network effect. Uh-huh. I don't think I don't think Uniswap has a network effect, but Huh. Yeah, well, that actually leads to my next question because I was kind of curious. I've seen people chatter about how another team could fork Uniswap and for instance, like I guess part of the fee now goes to the Uniswap team instead of all of it going to liquidity providers. And so someone suggested, "Oh, someone could fork Uniswap and then have all the fees go to uh, the liquidity providers or that someone could fork Uniswap and then launch a token with it before Uniswap does. So how durable do you think Uniswap's current lead is? So I'll let, I'll let Hasib answer that question because he's invested in a, in a project that um, is doing something like that. Um, one quick correction there is that the, uh, there is a protocol fee switch in Uniswap v2, but it isn't currently turned on. Um, so right now all fees go to liquidity providers. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. So this is actually, I was, I was just chatting with somebody about this yesterday. I think it's actually a very interesting question. So, um, so there actually is a, a protocol. We, we're investors in uh, OneInch, which is, a, which is a, a, a decentralized exchange aggregator, basically meaning it lets you kind of route uh, an order across like every single decentralized liquidity source. So you can route it to Uniswap, Curve, Balancer, whatever. It just finds you the best price across everything. And so they launched their own version of, of Uniswap, a fork of it called Muniswap, which has a slightly different design basically uses the same front end, kind of the same underlying mechanics. And uh, Mooniswap, I think right now they're like at 100 million in total liquidity. Uh, their trading volume is still quite a bit lower than Uniswap's, but they've, they've managed to garner a lot of liquidity in a very short amount of time. And in a way, I think this is uh, not, a, not a complete validation, but it's, it's something, of a, uh, something of, a, of a sign in favor of, uh, hey, you know, Uniswap does not have a, a traditional network effect, right? And part of the reason why I say this, and I think this is actually an interesting question, right? Mooniswap is, uh, is, is doing liquidity mining. So there's going to be a, a small amount of, of the one-inch token, which gets liquidity mined to early LPs who, uh, who you know, put capital into, into Mooniswap to help capitalize them and give it liquidity. So naturally what that does is it juices liquidity, right? It brings a lot of capital uh, into, the, into, the, into the pools and makes it so that now you know, trading can happen with lower slippage and so on. Uh, and that's great. It makes a lot of sense. The question is, could Uniswap counter by having their own version of liquidity mining and sort of try to pull it, pull it back in their favor, right? And I argue 
that actually they couldn't. Uh, and this is this is kind of a weird argument. This might be totally off kilter for for this podcast, but I kind of want to I kind of want to talk about it with with Dan. So I'm going to go ahead and nerd out on it. Um, the, here's the idea, right? When you do liquidity mining, basically what you're doing is you're rewarding early adopters, right? You're rewarding people who come in early before it really makes economic sense for them to provide a lot of liquidity. You're sort of subsidizing that early liquidity uh, in exchange for them having some ownership over a future revenue stream that's going to come when this thing becomes at scale. Right. When the thing is really big and has tons of liquidity, then then, you know, they're going to the people who got in early are going to get rewarded by getting some of the profits that would otherwise go to those latecomers. Right. So in a way, it's sort of a redistributive transfer from latecomers to early comers. Right. OK, so it makes sense that you, Mooniswap can do this because Mooniswap has no latecomers. Right. It's a, a tiny protocol and they're rewarding the people who come on early. But Uniswap is already at scale. So right now, 100 percent of Uniswap users, uh, all of the liquidity providers, how are they getting rewarded with Uniswap profits, right? If you turned on liquidity mining in Uniswap, then everybody who gets those profits would get, like they would, they would all be getting Uniswap tokens, which would give them just a portion of the profits that they were already getting 100% of. So it's almost like a stock split or something. It, it basically doesn't do anything to the amount of revenue that they get because they're already getting 100% of the revenue of Uniswap. So my argument is that what liquidity mining really is, is it's a way for you to juice your early your early growth and, and to get uh, early liquidity on board. But once you're at scale, liquidity mining doesn't really do that much for you. That's my argument. So, right. Uh, I think you said a lot of interesting things there, but the piece that I'll pick out is that I, you said that you think Uniswap is, is at scale, is that it's, is that's mature. And I think there's, yeah. there's quite a long way to go. I think in fact, um, right now, the, the amount of liquidity in Uniswap is a small fraction of what I think ultimately it will be uh, and same for volume. So um, that's I would say it's, it's still early. As with as with Bitcoin and as with the rest of the space, yeah, that was pretty much exactly my thought. I was like, "See, this is this is <laughs> this is nothing yet." Um, <laughs> all right, but we're going to talk in a moment a little bit more about the future of Uniswap and also talk about just the future of trading in cryptocurrency. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Haseeb Qureshi and Dan Robinson. So Haseeb, I think you wanted to expound a little bit more on the network effects in automated market makers. Yes. So I don't believe that, uh, so Dan earlier made the claim that uh, Uniswap has a network effect, and I, I don't think this is correct. Um, I think you can, you can clearly argue that AMMs have a scale effect, meaning that the more liquidity they have, the better pricing they offer, uh, and that's great. Uh, however, you know, if, if, let's say I have you know, a big pool of ETH USDC and then I have another pool of like you know, Ample, ETH, or whatever, um, the ETH USDC pool has no effect. It, it doesn't help me in any way in getting people into the, the next pool that I start. So each marginal pool doesn't really benefit from other pools that exist within the same protocol. Um, so, so that, when I think of a network effect, I think like the idea that uh, you know nobody can nobody can uh, compete with Uniswap once it gets to scale because of the fact that 
it just doesn't ever make sense to list your pool anywhere else other than Uniswap. And that's not really true. If you're bringing your own, I mean, for something like Ample, right? They're sort of bringing their own community. They're bringing their own volume. And if at some point when Uniswap turns on fees, they're paying some of that volume to another set of, of users, um, at some point they might just decide like, hey, uh, we're just going to fork Uniswap or we're going to use some other protocol that doesn't charge fees and we're going to take that liquidity in-house. And so I'm not certain that you're not going to see the same sort of thing that happened with 0x where they created this, you know, when 0x was a public good and everybody loved it and found it really fantastic, everyone was using it. And then once it turned on fees and once it started becoming, you know, the, you sort of end up having this, uh, this, this real question of like, hey, do I really want to be paying a third party for getting what is, what is a nicely provisioned public good, but actually not something I can't just fork and build in-house, uh, that you won't see the same sort of thing happening uh, once Uniswap tries to do that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens. But one other thing that I wanted to ask about was Haseeb, you had written a couple of really great blog posts about automated market makers. And in one of them, you said that over time, you felt DeFi would probably attract serious market makers. And that at that time, we'll see more complex markets. And the follow-on effect will be that Uniswap will uh, decrease in market share. Why do you think that? There are a few reasons why I think that. And I, I want to caveat all this with saying that Uniswap v3 may really fundamentally change my analysis of Uniswap because it, from what I've heard, it's going to be very different. Um, but let's just take Uniswap v2 so we can actually... We can Dan's actually just smiling. Something. He's know, not going to yeah. talk about it. But. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but so we are looking Uniswap, at him. That's right. That's right. Let's take Uniswap v2 as the, as the uh, sort of core example. Um, so Uniswap v2, like I mentioned earlier, is, is a pretty, a, a very inefficient market maker, right? Like most market makers don't need $100 million on their balance sheet in order to make a market with pretty tight spreads, especially if they have pretty strong priors or if they're able to hedge or they're able to do other things that allows them to lower their risk relative to something like Uniswap. So the problem with Uniswap is that Uniswap doesn't know anything that's going on in the world, right? It, it basically has no signals, no inputs into its pricing function besides just how much of asset A do I have and how much of asset B do I have? That's literally the only thing it knows when it decides uh, what prices to put. Right. Of course, if you look at real market makers, if you just have arbitrary levels of intelligence, right? What would you do? Well, look at what real market makers do. They like use machine learning and they look at liquidity and they model volatility and they do all this fancy stuff. Uh, and they, and they also like, you know, try to hedge so that they're not taking on momentary risk and they don't have to, they don't really need as much balance sheet to absorb all of that, uh, all the, you know, trading. If they're, if things are going one way or another, they can draw credit lines. They can do all sorts of stuff, right? They have, they have unlimited freedom to do whatever they want. And so, now, it's obviously true that up till now, DeFi has been so small that professional market makers just really had no interest or like the, the, the kinds of professional market makers who had interest in DeFi were very, very small and not very well capitalized. Um, and they pretty much all traded on order book exchanges, which also didn't have a lot of volume. And so that you sort of had this like negative, um, this, this kind of death spiral that was happening in, in DeFi market making where the order books were thin that didn't bring attractive market makers, which led the order book being thin. And it sort of was very difficult to break out of this trap. Now it's very clear that that has changed, right? Retail is here. Retail is trading on DeFi. And the first thing that every market maker I've talked to has seen is like, holy crap, if, if DeFi is going to be the next frontier, we want to be there because we can see, look at all these profits that Uniswap is making, right? All these profits that Uniswap is making is not because Uniswap has some brilliant pricing advantage. It's not because it's like way more gas efficient than any other way of, of providing liquidity. The reason why is just it's the only thing there. It's the only place where you can actually get meaningful liquidity today. What I argue is that once professional market makers set up shop, which is non-trivial, it's going to take them a bit of time, 
because it's complicated and there are regulatory hurdles and all this stuff. Uh, but once they do, uh, they are going to outcompete almost all AMMs that are pricing difficult to price assets, right? So difficult to price assets, I mean things like, you know, ETH USDC, which is a complicated pair to trade, right? Like, you know, you, you couldn't trade that from your bedroom very effectively. Um, if you're, if you're trading things like stable coins or, you know, uh, Bitcoin, different wrap Bitcoin things, then that's pretty easy. And you can use, I think, algorithmic market makers fairly effectively to, uh, you know, capitalize on, on, um, uh, fairly, you know, the, the hard part of that is inventory management. It's not really pricing, right? But for something like ETH USDC, uh, I think, you're going to end up getting much more competitive on-chain pricing because it's a very liquid market. It's a thing that a lot of people want to buy. And Uniswap is just going to get competed with by smarter, leaner, more intelligent uh, actors. And I don't think that algorithmic market makers are very well equipped right now to compete with those kinds of actors. Uh, and when that happens, right, it's not just that Uniswap sits there and is like, oh man, I didn't get as much volume this month. Uh, what happens is that liquidity providers are like, wait, crap, this is a crappy deal now. I'm not getting... A whole lot of volume. I'm not really getting any trades. Uh, and instead, what I'm getting is the, old, the only people who are trading with me is only when my pool is mispriced. And that's when the market makers, the professional market makers are like, no, I'm not going to do this trade. That's crazy. Uh, but Uniswap is like, oh yeah, sure. X times Y equals K. Let's do it. Um, and what you're going to get is this sort of inverse scale effect where now suddenly uh, you're getting this adverse selection where the only people trading with you are the people who are, um, who are, who are basically getting uh, uh, good prices, better prices than they're getting anywhere else. Uh, and the professional market makers are actually getting the, the uh, sort of the majority of the retail volume as opposed to the arbitrageur volume. So that's my argument in a nutshell of why I think AMMs are going to recede from being the kind of core uh, liquidity sources in, in DeFi. Wow. And then what do you think will emerge? I suspect what will emerge is a, is a larger ecosystem of actors that looks more similar to what you see in, in CeFi. Um, so now, what, what, what does that mean? There are many different ways you can imagine this, this playing out. So in my blog post, I sort of paint this picture of, you know, you can imagine a world where there's a, a really simple software stack that any market maker can deploy that basically, you know, pushes out a smart contract and an API endpoint that anybody can ping that API endpoint, get a price quote, and then automatically submit it to an on-chain contract, which prints the trade. And so that contract kind of looks and feels like Uniswap. The, the assets are all on chain. It sort of has the same affordance to the end user, right? It's like whether I'm using Uniswap or using this or using that, like I don't really care. All I want is a good price. And if that's true, you can imagine like a, a network of, of market makers from all over the world, none of whom you have to trust. You don't have to sign an agreement with them. You don't have to get to know them. Uh, all you got to do is just like make sure that they have a standardized contract and take their API quote, plug it in the contract, and it prints the trade at the price that they give you. Um, and you can do that. You can do that today. It's actually not that hard. Uh, but you know, most of these market makers are not DeFi native, so they haven't ramped up on any of this stuff yet. Uh, and of course, up till now, there hasn't been any reason to. So that's one vision of how this could play out. I think there are obviously many others. It could be that order book exchanges start becoming dominant. Uh, it's, it's hard to say in advance, but what I can say is that I'm fairly confident that the landscape is going to change and that centralized market makers are going to play a larger and larger role in providing liquidity on chain. And so will that... Then, so so basically that, you know, as you said, will be more like an order book, decentralized exchange. But then in terms of like the interface, would that be something like one inch exchange or what, what would be the interface for that? Or, or is it just something like zero X? So I imagine there are going to be a lot of sort of front ends for DeFi, right? Like right now, right now, if you, if you think about like what DeFi is like to use today, right? 
there's like 20 different protocols. You like go on DeFi Pulse to like see what the newest thing is. And you like Google it. You look it up on Twitter to see if it's real. You, you know, do some trades with it. You try to look up like, you know, uh, what orders, what, what books do they have? What actual trading pairs do they do? It's a pain in the ass. It's super complicated. Like this is not the way that DeFi is going to work at scale, right? Not every user is going to have to underwrite every protocol and figure out which ones are real and which ones are not. Um, at some point, there's going to be some like sort of almost like a brokerage experience which is sort of what aggregators are today. They're sort of the closest thing to that brokerage experience. But there are also things like, you know, Instadap or Zerion or things like that that show you, you know, look, you go to one place and you say, hey, I want to trade uh, USDC for ETH or I want to take out a loan or I want to do this thing, right? And I don't care about the brand. I don't know what Uniswap is. I don't know what Balancer is. I don't know what any of these things are. I don't care what they are. All I want to do is like do the actual thing I want, which is I want to buy something or I want to trade something or I want to invest something, Right. Uh, that's going to be what DeFi looks like at scale, to my mind. And when that happens, right now, you know, most of the users today are going directly to the protocols. And maybe something like 20, 30% are going to aggregators today. And I think a lot of that is that people don't really know what these aggregators are. It's pretty new. And, um, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's pretty complicated to even express what's going on on a lot of these platforms, right? Like, it takes a podcast like this to even explain what even is Uniswap to a lot of people who just have kind of heard the name and just know things are happening. Um, but eventually, you know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, it won't be quite as exotic to be like, oh, yeah, I'm trading on DeFi. You know, it's not that weird. At that point, I think there, there are going to be much simpler affordances that make it so that liquidity pools like Balancer or Uniswap are not the front ends. They're not the things that users are directly interacting with. They're sort of like wholesale markets. They sort of work on the back end. They're somewhere in the supply chain of what users are doing, uh, but they're not, they, they're not the place where users are directly going because they don't need to. There's no reason why they would be committed to a, a, you know, a single front end if what they want to do is just to do the, the thing, not the protocol. Yeah. So I know Dan is going to want to rebut that, or I think, uh, but before uh, he does that, I actually just want to kind of help listeners along. So when we're talking about aggregators, think sort of, you know, like Kayak or Expedia for travel. And that's just what places like One Inch are doing for automated market makers. They're just showing what is the best price across all the different DEXs. And then people can use that to, uh, to, to trade rather than just going to each individual one and comparing. And I will also say that, you know, I think these ideas are kind of percolating because I did see Jose Maria Macedo of Delphi Digital. He wrote something about, um, you know, com comparing basically uh, DEXs to what he called airlines and then saying, you know, the aggregators are where this is going to go. And um, and so in his view, he was saying that DEXs, they need to focus on their supply side, like on, on um, the liquidity providers, because the retail, the traders, that's not going to be how they're going to differentiate themselves, um, which, you know, I, I have that in the show notes, his tweets from and, and his articles on that, for, if people want to look, because it's pretty interesting. But anyway, so Dan, I know you disagree with Hasib's idea that order book DEXs will dominate in the future, especially like once we get to more high throughput chains, um, unlike Ethereum 1.0. Um, so Dan, what, what, do you, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, so so I think as I understand Steve's argument, um, it's that professional market makers who have access, um, he's right, to much more uh, detailed information and can do much more sophisticated strategies than an on-chain market maker um, will essentially outcompete Uniswap and offer a tighter spread and therefore draw away the the high quality volume. Um, and I think my response to that primarily is an analogy, 
And this is to look at um, in 1974, what you might have said to somebody who thought that they could compete with active managers of money um, by simply buying all the stocks in a list and just holding them. And this seemed like a crazy idea at the time. Um, and it was compounded with another crazy idea, which was of mutualization, which was um, like act running an actual mutual mutual fund that was owned by its investors um, rather than having uh, being publicly traded or, or being uh, having sort of an independent management company. And uh, Vanguard obviously um, founded around that time, um, now the second largest uh, asset manager in the world and uh, the largest mutual fund. And I think that shows um, some of the benefits of of simplicity and of, of low costs. So market makers, professional market makers that Haseeb's referring to here often have very high margins. Um, they, pay their, they pay their employees a lot. Um, they can often have a, have a relatively higher cost of capital. Um, and generally like when, when they're, they don't think it's, it's worth it to get out of bed for basically the kind of profits that right now um, uh, people on, on chain liquidity providers are, are willing to, um, to do. And so, uh, I think the the advantage that automated liquidity providers have is that you can get much more capital deployed doing the strategy um, by both uh, by by sharing all the you know the the equity benefits essentially of of investing in the strategy with all the with the uh, liquidity providers and keeping sort of the overhead minimal um, and by just making it as simple as one click just to uh, to provide to this and you don't have to you know diligence some particular market maker in there uh, and their strategy and I think. That's that's part of my my and this this is very speculative, but that's part of my vision for how Uniswap could not only compete um, in DEXs um, and for crypto trading, but could potentially change the face of of I think market making um, across the financial industry. So I have the three three counters that I want to make to that. Um, so the first is that sort of going in reverse order from some of the claims that you made. Um, so one is that I, I agree. I don't think market makers are going to summon as much. Uh, capital on chain, but they don't need to, right? The whole point is that Uniswap and its like are, are very, very capital inefficient relative to normal market makers uh, because they have to be, right? Like in, in Uniswap, we call inventory liquidity, which is a really weird way of thinking about inventory, right? Like normally for a market maker, liquidity and inventory are two totally different things. Um, and you can provide liquidity with your entire inventory or not. And, uh, you know, Uniswap sort of uses a very narrow band of its inventory to do most of its trading. Um, the second thing that I would say is that, um, you know, if you believe that Uniswap is not at scale, it sounds like you're also implying that DeFi is going to grow really dramatically. And so if the bet is that market makers aren't going to get out of bed for a market that's going to grow dramatically, then it's like, look, it, either DeFi is going to grow really big and it's going to be an interesting pie for market makers to attack or it's, or it's, or it's not. It's going to stay small. Um, and I, I think I agree with you, or at least your prior claim, that DeFi is going to grow quite a bit, in which case I think the, the pie for market makers is going to be attractive enough for them to get out of bed and, and to attack this, this new market. Um, and of course, the thing is, you don't need that many market makers to do this. You, know, like you don't need a jump or a tower or somebody really, really huge uh, in order to get somebody on chain who can outcompete Uniswap. Like you really only need one or two competitive market makers to get a really strong ecosystem going. Uh, and then the, the, the third point that I would make is that you know, the point you're making about passive investing um, sounds like a great bull case for, for set protocol. Uh, but I, I don't think it really describes what Uniswap is, because Uniswap is is not a passive strategy. It's actually an active strategy. It's just a very simplistic active strategy. Uh, I will always quote X times Y plus K. And like, of course, you know, if if that strategy is tremendously successful, right, 
like you could get a centralized market maker to do the exact same thing, right? Like they, they do have the balance sheet. If the APRs are as sustainable as they are, somebody will absolutely deploy, you know, 200, 300 million dollars to just put on on-chain uh, capital pools and just start earning those trading fees, right? Like if that if that's the thesis, then then it, it, there's no reason in principle why uh, Uniswap and decentralized LPs would capture the lion's share of that. So all, all that being said, I think, I, I agree with you that Uniswap has changed things. And there's no, there's no going back from, I think, the new ideas that Uniswap has brought to the table, um, which I think were very difficult to anticipate in the beginning, right? I think incentivized pools and bootstrapping liquidity, these are really, really new phenomena that were theoretical before this. And now it's like very, very clear how it works and why it works and that you can't put, you can't take the genie uh, back in the bottle. Well, that when... said, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Finish. I, I, I was just wrapping up this. That said, I, I don't think they are, uh, I don't think when you look at the, the market share two years from now, I don't think it's going to look the same as it does today. Yeah. Well, one thing I also wanted to ask about was this introduction of yield aggregators like why earn finance which basically seeks out the highest yield from any kind of DeFi product, whether it's a lending protocol or an AMM or a yield farming scheme. And I just wonder, do yield aggregators make it harder for AMMs to compete? Because it just sort of feels like right now people can sort of, you know, all flock to one or another very easily with just, you know, using Y-Earn. And I just wondered, like, how does that even affect the ability for some of these AMMs to survive? I don't think it really affects them in a direct way. In an indirect way, it does potentially because it allows these big, gigantic pools of capital to just like kind of fly around at a moment's notice. And that's a little bit scary, but yeah. um, it's sort of like they, they were sort of doing that anyway, even before, you know, Wireon came around uh, because lots and lots of whales were just sort of following the best liquidity mining rewards. And mm. right now, um, it's pretty clear that liquidity mining is here to stay. And I, I don't think you can blame the giant pools of capital flying, flinging around left and right on Wireon so much as the underlying thing that Wireon is uh, responding to, which is huge amounts of subsidies being paid out that primarily whales are capturing right now. Yeah, I, 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 think, it's, um, I think it is an important development. I think it's something that we all thought was, was basically inevitable eventually, which is that on-chain liquidity is going to be quite flighty. Um, it's going to it's going to seek the highest yield, and I think the the protocols that want to be sustainable sort of have to design around that fact. And it's a good fact in many ways. I mean, it means that you can with you know with with uh, some incentives, for example, to sort of summon a huge amount of liquidity that you wouldn't necessarily normally be able to. Um, I do think it poses extra risks, and like uh, essentially, almost any of these strategies are going to have some discretion by governance um, about what kind of pools are safe to put money into. Uh, and so I worry about, about it from, from that perspective. Um, but I think it would be a great outcome if, if uh, essentially people can, can just pool their liquidity as passively as possible and have it safely allocated to whatever on-chain um, is providing the best, the best benefit. Okay. So one other thing I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, just... A sort of a one-off, it's like a little bit separate from everything we've been discussing, is the CRV token launch, <laughs> um, which uh, basically what happened there is that an anonymous developer supposedly not affiliated with Curve. So C CRV token is for Curve, uh, the Curve AMM, which is the one we were talking about. It uh, focuses on stable coins. And um, 
this anonymous person uh, or supposedly anonymous person decided to launch the open source CRV token contract and uh, paid about $8,000 in gas fees to do so. But a lot of people were surmising that this was actually somebody who either was affiliated with the team or that it was somebody who um, the team had orchestrated this with. And I wondered, you know, what do you guys think happened there? And what do you think this incident says about how AMMs might launch tokens going forward? So I only know about it what, I, what I've read on Twitter. Um, and I, it didn't seem to me that anybody had um, an extremely strong theory about uh, who this person was or what they were doing. I saw sort of a lot of, a lot of speculation flying around about it. Um, it is kind of a, just a remarkable, a remarkable fact um, that this can be done and, a, and sort of a weird fact about, um, about DeFi and about how token launches have been going that whatever happened, like if someone random actually had just deployed the contract and like gotten a sufficient community momentum around it, um, I could see how the team wouldn't actually have a choice. Um, and that's, that's a very, it's a very weird thing where, yeah, where protocols essentially are not, are not under the control of their creators. They're under control of whatever the community wants to, um, wants to say is, this, is the CRV token. That's the CRV token. Yeah, I, I think crypto has enough speculation, so I try not to add to it personally. But um, I, I, I do think philosophically it's fascinating, the idea that like, the community itself just sort of decided which CRV token is the CRV token. And um, I, I think this is like one of those things that will eventually show up in like a philosophy textbook someday of like, you know, what, what, makes, the, what makes the token like the, the token of that community uh, other than just people on Twitter deciding that it is and then starting to trade it and give it a high price. And, and the team, you know, if, if in fact the story as told is correct, um, that's kind of fascinating that, you know, they sort of were like, it wasn't up to them which CRV token ended up being the one that they had to sort of, you know, canonicalize as, as the uh, core part of their protocol. All right. And one other thing we touched on briefly was some of these initial DeFi offerings or initial DEX offerings, like the UMA token launch, where they just put a liquidity pool. Was it UMA versus ETH or what? That's right. Yeah. On Uniswap. And that garnered a fair amount of criticism at the time. Can you explain why that was and whether or not you think that means we will see like a lot more of those or or very few of those? Yeah. So... I would say, um, and I think uh, most people agree, uh, Uniswap is not a fantastic um, mechanism for initial price discovery. Certainly not if, if you put a, if you put a huge amount of liquidity out there. And so, uh, one metaphor here is to is to like initial public. I mean, if you offerings. don't put a huge amount of liquidity out there, I'm saying the more, no, the more liquidity you put, the worse because because um, essentially the initial market maker ends up selling a bunch of. of uh, uh, whoever's whoever's the initial liquidity provider ends up selling a lot of tokens at a at a price that doesn't it isn't close to where it uh, where it ends up, oh, um, and so I think the I think you know so, so, so there have been some other experiments around this and I think uh, you know people have done sort of like batch auctions and so, so yeah so the 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 one metaphor here is to um, uh, initial public offerings where there's a lot of criticism of banks for mispricing initial offerings so that there's a pop on the first day and that's you know to some extent an opportunity cost of the company. Um, I think just initial price discovery is very hard and you don't want to necessarily sell too much at the, at whatever initial price you set, no matter how well you valued it. Uh, yeah, that said, I think within, you know, a, a matter of, a matter of, of minutes, um, I think the, in um, the UMA tokens case, it was trading very close to, uh, to where it was trading the rest of the day. Um, and so you will get price discovery. You just may get it with some very weird trading prices at the beginning of the process. 
Yeah, I think there's still some science to be done on exactly how initial price discovery should happen on DeFi. Obviously, you know, Uma, I think, was the first to really do this. And I, I should note Uma is a portfolio company. They were the first to do this, and, and I think they got a lot of criticism for it, but they really did kind of show that, like, hey, here's probably what you should not do, and here's what potentially goes wrong. Um, and then there were other teams that have sort of neglected that lesson and sort of did the same thing, like BZX and a couple others. Um, I think people are still playing around with, like, okay, can, can we do some kind of batch auction, like on Matcha or Gnosis or whatever? Um, there are other folks who are kind of coming up with other ideas, but it's still sort of uncharted territory. The other, I think, question that nobody really has a good answer to yet is how much float do you need out there on day one for there to be good price discovery just in terms of, you know, there being enough supply. Um, so if you have like, you know, look at CRV, right? CRV was sort of linearly releasing CRV tokens out for trading, which led to this really ridiculous first day fully diluted price of like $45 billion, which made it worth more than Ethereum. Uh, and then, you know, it's slowly been ticking down as more and more supply has been, more float has been coming on the market. Um, and you know you saw the same things. We, we've seen this lesson many, many times in crypto with like Zcash and with Grin that having this sort of effect where a tiny amount of float comes out on day one and it slowly linearly increases until at some point it stabilizes. Um, it probably behooves tokens that are that are thinking about getting some kind of price stability on day one to try to make sure there's enough float out there initially for that uh, for that price discovery to be uh, useful. Um, but I, I don't think anybody has done a full you know, uh, a full uh, postmortem on exactly what is the, what are the right parameters for a new token. So fees on Ethereum are extremely high right now. In the last few days, they were as high as almost $7, $6.60. And at the time of recording, they're still at $2.40. And obviously, Ethereum is still in the midst of this lengthy, multi-phase transition to Ethereum 2.0. So Ethereum 2.0 is not going to be able to accommodate this kind of DeFi activity for a while. And meanwhile, we are seeing that FTX is going to launch a DEX called Serum on the Solana blockchain. And the FTX founder, Sam Thankman-Fried, calls Solana 10,000 times faster and 1 million times cheaper than Ethereum. And Serum apparently will also be interoperable with Ethereum. So I wondered if you think, and, and it's not even just about Serum, uh, but I just wondered in general, do you think that there's a real risk that the DeFi community or ecosystem could move to another blockchain? I think my views on this are pretty close to Hasib's, and he explains it very well. So I'll I'll let him answer. What? What? What are my views? Hold on. What? With the Wall Street, the Wall Street. Analogy. Okay, 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 okay. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, so my take here is that I think it at this point, it's it's basically over, in the sense that Ethereum has already solidified itself as being the Wall Street of crypto. Right now, there is a very real question that, like, look, Manhattan is now crazy crowded. The rents are insane. Like traffic congestion is is just un, you know, unthinkable. And so if you're not a gazillionaire, you probably don't want to live in Manhattan anymore, right? But that doesn't mean that all the finance in the world is only going to live in Manhattan, right? They're going to be, like, even with gas prices being as high as they are, obviously they are this high because people are willing to pay these prices. And those people are, you know, they're mostly uh, whales and people who are trading in very high volume. Uh, and so it's worth it to them to trade on these venues. But eventually there are going to be other places that open up, other venues that sort of become like, you know, the analogy that I've, I've given before is like sort of become the Chicago to Ethereum's New York, right? There will mm. be some second place with some kind of bridge, whether it be a layer two, whether it be, you know, an interoperability solution like Polkadot or Cosmos, or whether it be another layer one, there's going to be some second place where people can go. Uh, and probably initially that place is going to service a lot of the, the lower expensive, the lower expense transactions. So like, you know, folks like you and me who, 
aren't really looking to place, you know, $10,000 trades uh, on any given day, we're going to be trading, you know, for like closer to one cent or five cent fees on these chains that don't have as much liquidity. They aren't going to be as juicy. They're not going to have as crazy yield farming, uh, but they're going to be places where at least in the early days, we're going to start doing some of the normal stuff that we used to do on Ethereum. Um, and so I suspect that's, that's the way you're going to see some specialization among chains for DeFi is that there will be some chains where the really high value transactions take place and those chains will probably be more congested. Um, but then there'll be places where, you know, sort of lower, uh, lower value, but higher throughput stuff can happen, which will likely be offloaded to, to the, the newer uh, places where DeFi is going to migrate. And, and do you think that might be what, what happens with Serum? I think Serum is, um, is, is much more of a verticalized bet than I think what, what I'm describing with some of these other chains. Um, it's sort of like, uh, I, think, I think Serum is kind of trying to kingmake Solana right now, where Serum is like this big, fat, super impressive project that uh, I think both Solana and Serum are betting that like, okay, this is going to be like the big thing that makes, that makes Solana work because Serum is going to be so big and awesome and attract so many users that it's going to cause this ecosystem around it. And this was actually a big, a big thesis that you know, a lot of uh, investors were entertaining back in 2017 was this idea that like, okay, yeah, Ethereum is kind of working for some stuff, right? But like when, when we really get the killer app, that killer app is going to decide who wins because they're going to decide, hey, you know, Ethereum is too crowded. It kind of sucks. EVM is painful. We're going to go to this chain and then they're going to bring all their users, right? And in a way, that's kind of like the story of the Libra and the story of some of these other big things is that they're going to bring so many users that they're going to cause this ecosystem to either migrate or have a new parallel ecosystem develop around them. Um, whether that will happen, we'll see. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's tough. I think that Serum has a really, really big lift ahead of them. Um, but if it works, it could obviously be really, really incredible. I'm looking forward to the Serum launch in part because um, it's going to be an order, base, uh, order book based DEX. And so this will sort of test the, the question of whether order books um, for DEX uh, work better um, if you eliminate the scaling constraints. Hmm. I, I don't think it's, it's sufficient, but it is necessary. Yeah. Well, so we'll see what happens. All right. So uh, let's now switch to predictions <laughs> for just maybe, I don't know, the next few years. And when you give your predictions for what will happen with AMMs, I'd also be curious to know what you think will happen with centralized cryptocurrency exchanges. And this is on what time scale predictions? Uh, I just think maybe, I don't know, like three years, three to five, I guess. So I will lay down a marker, which is that I think, I think Uniswap V3 will be um, a really, viewed as a really significant development um, and will change the AMM landscape. Um, and that's easy for me to say, but um, uh, you can, if, if, if I ever come back on this podcast, you can make fun of me if I was wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I probably will have to. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Um, do you think Uniswap will still be the number one? Uh, uh, venue for trading in three years. I think that's I think that's the way to bet, um, and I will make that bet with you. See, maybe offline. <laughs> all right, all right. We could do it on um, air too. I think, I think Laura <laughs> likes these things. Uh, I think I think I think most likely in part because I think they have a, they have a head start, and also because I'm I'm just generally extremely impressed by the innovation that's been going on with the team, um, and I think the uh, the community at large. Um, so that's one. I do think we're going to see um, some. Sp highly specialized AMMs uh, come out. And I, I'm thinking especially of options um, and maybe of stuff like prediction markets where you could see something that's very highly optimized for a particular um, use case. 
And so I think I think we'll see some of those. But in, in my view, I think you know Uniswap, um, and especially with what it's got coming down the pipe, be the we'll get the lion's share of volume. I see. So my prediction, um, I, unfortunately, I don't have any really exciting picture to paint, but I think. I think trading volume is going to continue to grow. I think that uh, DEXs will, will eat more and more of centralized exchange volume. And you'll continue to see this phenomenon that uh, a lot of tokens, especially if they're on Ethereum, are going to start trading on Ethereum before they start trading uh, on centralized exchanges, which is going to continue to drive people into the front doors. Um, I think that you're eventually going to get to a place where the, the experience... So one, I think we're already starting to see this, but you'll see it more and more, of centralized exchanges starting to integrate DeFi and to basically offer some of these services uh, directly in-house. Because of course, like they want to be the front end of crypto too. They see what's going on here and they realize it's a threat. Um, and you know, these guys aren't stupid and they've got big businesses to protect. So I think that's going to be one thing that we see. Um, and I could see in that sense, like, uh, you know, like we mentioned before, sort of DeFi becoming almost like this, this backend to the services that, that people actually directly interface with. And it might be that people still end up trusting exchanges and spending a lot of their time there. Um, but as exchanges are get more regulated or get more onerous or just get more annoying or, you know, are, are sort of too overprotective of their customers. Um, those customers might choose to go direct. And if they do, they'll go natively on DeFi and they'll do all the crazy stuff that Dan and I are talking about. Um, I do think that a few years from now, it won't be that weird to, for people to be trading on DeFi. I think it'll be, you know, it'll, it'll still not be like your mom, but it'll be like your smart tech friends who will all be, you know, it just won't be that hard. Like you'll tell them like, Hey, just use this app. Like it, or use this website. It's like pretty good. It like, you know, make sure that you don't touch any of the weird stuff. And it like, you know, it'll, it'll route your orders to the right place and you're not going to shoot yourself in the foot. Right. And that's most of what people need in order to navigate DeFi. Um, so I, I suspect that things are really only going to become easier and easier to use. And that's, that's the thing about technology is that centralized exchanges, we kind of already know what they are. You know, there's not that much more room for innovation other than just adding more products or making, making the thing slightly smoother. Uh, DeFi has so much to go. And the thing about technology is that it only ever gets better. And that's, that's the scary thing is that it's, 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 it's difficult to put a cap on like how good DeFi is going to get. It's hard to know. And right now, DeFi is only, the only thing happening in DeFi pretty much uh, is, is spot trading. And of course, we already know spot trading is a tiny portion of all the trading in crypto. And so I think that's going to change as well, but that's going to also take some time. All right. Well, we will see what happens. All right. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Hasib, and uh, you can find some of our writing at uh, dcp.capital, uh, where we publish research. And I'm at, at Dan Robinson on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having me, Laura. Thanks for doing this, thank Dan. You. This was fun. It was. Yeah, it was really fun. I'm very excited to see where all this goes. So <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Haseeb and Dan, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.